I'm a strong believer that if we're not constantly learning and growing and progressing, that we will become obsolete. The skills you were using five years ago are not the ones you're using today. And the same thing goes for five years from now. They also talk about jobs that our kids are going to have don't exist today. Whenever I have people reporting to me, I dedicate 10% of their time to learning and training and growing so that they will develop the new skills and be able to take on those new things as they come. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Andrew Wilder, professor and multi-time CISO. After 18 years, he left a company he loved to make the jump from regional to global CISO. Now he gives back to the cybersecurity community by sharing knowledge with students and mentees. He joins us to cover his five-step mentorship plan, tips for career transitions, and interview guidelines that every CISO should know. Planning is crucial for a career move, especially for a CISO. So what is the 70-20-10 rule? Are there interview traps CISOs can fall into and how can you use in-person and virtual relationships to your advantage? Andrew, thank you so much for making time for us today. For the uninitiated, if you would please introduce yourself. Sure. So uh, Andrew Wilder, I've been in cybersecurity for about 20 years. Started as a consultant, spent about 18 years at Nestle, the food company and for the last two years was a global CISO of a manufacturing company. So actually, as a side story, how did we meet? I think it was just via LinkedIn. Isn't that not the case? It may have been. I think uh, I think you could be right. I, You know, if I think about it, there also could be one of these CISO groups that you and I are both members of. But I think it might have just been via LinkedIn. <laughs> if I remember correctly, the message at least, and I feel like we've crossed paths in the past. My memory is absolute garbage, but I think maybe a colleague of yours or a mutual friend may have shared something or maybe even been on the show. And then from what I remember, you sent a note. It's like, hey, I hear you have a podcast. Yeah, that it was something like along those lines. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're here today. For those that maybe don't usually listen frequently, the way we typically structure this is we do a kind of an introduction call with any future guest, and it's about 25 to 30 minutes, and we just do a quick chat, and we have video enabled, and so it's a little more friendly because this is all virtual. But I have to say that uh, I had a wonderful time speaking with Andrew and meeting with him, and so we've got, I think, some pretty great stuff to talk about today. In fact, I think we're going to have so much, we may have to come back to one particular topic that we'll get to here soon. So before we get into the meat of things, Andrew, why don't you unpack a little bit of kind of your origin story? How did you kind of pre-IT, pre-security, what were you doing? How did you get your start? Well, I I will apologize to your audience who may have heard this before or others. uh, It's fairly well rehearsed. Steve, have you ever seen this television show, The Office? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, which one? Well, either one will work, but let's go with the American version. So one of my first jobs at a school was working at a paper company, not unlike the Dunder Mifflin paper company in San Diego. 
And uh, because it was a small company, I ended up doing everything. My role was customer service, but I did finance, I did marketing and sales, did inventory. When we get really busy, I'd go out in the warehouse and drive to forklift and pick pallets and put orders on the truck. So I knew the whole business from beginning to end. One day, the owner of the company comes to me and he says, hey, Andrew, he says, we're going to replace our old mainframe computer system with Windows servers and Windows workstations. And I said, that sounds like a really good idea. And he said, well, you're the youngest guy, so you get to do this project. I said, okay. So for the next three months, I worked nights and weekends. I did all the data conversion by hand. And one day we'd go live with this new system and things break and I'm able to fix them on the fly. And it's such a satisfying day in my very young career. And I realized, hey, maybe I should stop working for the paper company and start doing this IT thing as a, as a full-time career. So I saved up some money. I saved up some vacation time and I went to Chicago for two weeks in the winter time. And I took a, a Microsoft boot camp and passed seven different exams. And by the end of that, I was a Microsoft certified systems engineer. And this allowed me to go out and start being an IT consultant. I got picked up by HP and consulted for Bank of America, uh, Nestle, and DHL. So that's how I kind of got started from the beginning. Was the connection to Nestle, is that what ultimately got you the job? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, all three of the companies that I consulted for gave me job offers. And so I had a great opportunity to make a choice. And the reason I chose Nestle was 100% because of the culture. It was a really great culture where everybody supported each other. We were all kind of in it together to do the best. And uh, I, I love that culture. And that's why I stayed for 18 years. So that, that's a pretty long run. That's one thing we share somewhat in common. I, I feel we're about of the same sort of IT generation age-wise. It was not uncommon for our peers to job hop. You know, I was eight and a half, almost nine years in my first sort of real IT job, and then seven and a half, and now six. And before that, like there's some others in there, but that's a pretty big block of time. So it must have been good. Yeah, it was. I mean, don't get me wrong, there were challenges and struggles as we went through it. But, you know, really, the people kept me going, my team, you know, my peers, the relationships that you develop being someplace for 18 years. I mean, that's a that's key. I met my wife there. The guy who was the best man at my wedding was there, you know, the godfather of my kids. So a lot of my good friends now are Nestle people. There's a lot more to cover, but I, f I feel obligated to ask, 18 years is a long run. Why wasn't it 2025? 20, it's a fair question. You know, when you get up in your career and you're at a regional CISO level, you realize at some point that there's nowhere else up for you to go. Right. So you can stay and you can wait for someone to retire or leave or whatever. But if you really want to progress in your career, sometimes even after 18 years at a place that you love, you need to make a jump. Yeah, I, I think there's no right answer to this. And I've I've struggled with this in the past. And I know many of the listeners have. You just got done describing what was a great what is a great culture at Nestle and I think it's pretty rare for people to sort of really love their company. It, it can happen, and it's out there for sure, and there's a lot of great companies, but it doesn't happen that frequently. You don't hear it that often. And so for you to, to lead with that is interesting and, and pretty powerful. It's funny the games we play 
to say, you know, hey, I've got a, a great job. I love the mission. I love the people. I love the culture. But there's one thing out of 99, there's one thing. And I've been there myself. That's why I'm, I'm speaking from not I'm not reflecting on what you shared directly, but I'm, I'm speaking for myself as well. But there's one thing that calls to us. The 99 we're happy with, but the one or two things we feel compelled to move. For you, I imagine that was a hell of a difficult move. Was it not? It was a really difficult move. And everybody, when I announced that this was happening, everyone was shocked. There were tears that were shed because people found out that I was leaving, which kind of blew my mind. But everybody thought I was there for the long run and I was just going to stay. And, you know, I said, look, I, I got to do the right thing for myself and for my family. And I love it here. I love the culture. I love you guys. But uh, I got to go. Wow. I dig into this a little bit because I know there's people listening that are at that same crossroads where things are good, but they maybe don't feel quite as fulfilled as they should. Is there a counterpoint? to this, meaning oftentimes we're fed up with a person or a title that we wish we had or some other level of responsibility or something. Looking back, do you have any advice to the person listening that might be the counterpoint to this, right? So a, a counterpoint to this, that to say, hey, maybe you should stay until you're sure that you dot, dot, dot. How would you finish that sentence? Well, Hindsight is always twenty twenty, you know, and you're whatever decision that you make, you're you're probably going to have some type of regrets about, you know, things that you left behind. And certainly I miss it and I miss the, the people and the camaraderie and all that type of stuff. But I would not focus on the grass is always greener. You know, there are going to be challenges, people challenges, business challenges, whatever they are, wherever you go, no place is going to be perfect. So I think you just need to make the decision as to what's best for you and your career. Um, I think if you're in a situation like mine, there's only really one role next for you to get, and there's not a chance of you getting that for any time in the near future, you might want to consider, is it right to stay? But I, I mean, I'm not going to tell anybody what to do and make your own decisions. I'll tell you what I did. Yeah, I have seen in my travels and in, in trying to be helpful to others and trying to do some coaching or maybe a mentoring if it, you know, give it a little more of a fancy name. And then now approaching, you know, almost a hundred hours of doing this, in addition to all the other things related to my career and interests and passions, managing your career is is not easy. And we often lack a good coach. So I'm fascinated continually by this topic of when should I leave? When should I go? When should I ask for more? When should I be content with what I have? When should I realize, hey, this is the greatest thing that, that I may ever experience. I'll, and I'll give you an example. There was a time in the middle of an, a complete crisis doing breach response where everyone was kind of going nuts. And I remember telling some people, said, you will look back on this moment, even though it seems like it's terrible. And it kind of was as one of the best moments of your career. And I've had many people many years later tell me, Steve, you were right. Now, unfortunately, I have not had that clarity always. I miss that. I don't always catch those moments. I don't always appreciate them. And so I just think it's an important thing to the degree we can to unpack that as a form of virtual leadership and mentorship. You got to make your own decisions and you got to live with them. But damn it, like, what are the things you should consider, right? Uh, are you chasing just a title? Are you 
Is it a work-life thing? Is it a family thing? Is it a location thing? Or is it okay just to say, hey, let's, let's be a little more patient and maybe we don't need that next title? Yeah, I'd like to touch on three things that you said. One was talking about having a good mentor or coach to help you. And I think that's really key. I just got off last week of doing a LinkedIn live session about mentoring and mentorship and kind of my strategy for it and some success stories and stuff. One thing that I think it's really clear is nobody is going to care about your career for you. You have to care about your own career and your own development. And if you're not empowering yourself to do that and devoting time to do that, a lot of people say, oh, I don't have time to do it. But time is what you prioritize, right? So you can make time for anything that you really care about. And the other thing that I liked when you were talking about the, this is going to be the most important moment in your career. There's a, a great quote. I don't know who, it, who to credit it to, but something along the lines of, I wish someone had told me that these were the good old days while they were the good old days, right? never realize that that's what it is until the future. Gosh, there's old photos and things I took and moments where, you know, we're building out new teams and new capabilities. And you look back and you're like, damn, like that was, that was really something. But those memories are one of the, you know, that's, if you have them, that means you've led and experienced a, a good life and, and appreciating them is one of the best things you can do. And then hopefully you blaze another trail and, you know, make more. It's interesting. You mentioned you know, no one will care about your career really as much as you should. I firmly believe that. It's not your employer's job. It's not your boss's job. Your boss should have an interest in it, but it's not their job necessarily. Hopefully they're a good leader, a good servant leader, and hopefully they're putting together tasks that make you valuable. What were some of the things you mentioned, devotion of time? What were some other things, successes? You, you said you did this LinkedIn Live. What's a couple of things you covered on that, that perspectives that you shared that you can share here? Yeah, well, I talked about my five-step plan that I do with everyone that I mentor. I'm going to try and remember all five off the top of my head. I think I can get it. So the first one is look at your current job description, right? What is it that you're supposed to be doing with your job? And look at any gaps that you have for that and create some development plans. That's probably step two is creating and reviewing the development plans with your mentor to say, here's the things I'm going to do. Probably too technical, too leadership focused, following that 70-20-10 approach, 70% by doing 20% through relationships, 10% through traditional learning. And then the third step being do a similar exercise with the next job that you want to get, right? What is it that you want to get in the future? What are the gaps that you have or the opportunities that you need to address in order to get there? The fourth one is creating some kind of a vision board. And every time I mentor people, I try to not put any rules around the vision board. Some people come with you know, something that looks like you made in junior high school with a bunch of pictures on a page and other people make an Excel spreadsheet. It's, it's up to you how you do it. But whatever you do with that vision board, you print it out and you put it on the wall behind your monitor or you put it on your refrigerator. You look at that thing every single day and you say, what am I doing? What incremental step am I taking today in order to achieve my goals and my dreams? And then the fifth one is, and a lot of people get freaked out by this one. The fifth one is go and apply for that next job that you want. And, you know, I'm mentoring people inside of a company where we both work for the same company and I'm saying go somewhere else and apply for another job. Whether or not you get it, the experience of doing that 
getting ready for that, getting your resume ready and all of those kind of things, going through that process and getting the feedback afterwards will really help you grow as a professional. So those are my five things. And I remembered them off the top of my head. So that's good. Walk me through what was it, the 702010 again? Yeah. So this was something that came from Nestle's uh, learning and training department, but it's based on studies. And basically what it says is 70% of your learning should be learning by doing. So you were talking about before, I hope you have a good servant leader and they're assigning tasks that make you valuable. As you assign someone a new task, they learn how to do that thing through doing, right? So involve them in a project, whatever. 20% of the learning is through relationships. So a lot of things about mentor or coach, but there's other ways of building relationships with people and networking with your peers, what have you, that helps you to learn and grow in that way. And then the 10% is, you know, I'm going to go take a course. I'm going to do an online learning program, whatever, to get a certification. Those are kind of the only 10% of the rule. I think that's an interesting way to structure effort. Obviously, the doing could be fairly variable or maybe even volatile, depending on what you have going on at work, right? Because it could apply if you get a project that's addressing one of the gaps uh, in a new area, you know, but also you may not have that. So you may have to grab that outside of work. I think the relationship one, especially those of us that work in a highly virtual environment, I think it's certainly you can have great relationships virtually. Maybe I'm old enough or old school enough where I think some of the best relationships or certainly the longest lasting were from face-to-face, you know, coworkers from years ago. We tend to stay in touch a little better. And that's my shortcoming. Any opinions or recommendations for those of us that might need to do it completely virtually? You know, the sort of virtual relationship or maybe you're not going into an office every day or maybe there's not a local meetup. What do you recommend there? I heard you talk about LinkedIn earlier, but what would you recommend for those without direction related to this 20%? Yeah. So first of all, find a mentor or a coach, whether it's through a formal program in your existing organization or whether it's informally by just asking somebody. The worst thing that can happen is they say no or they don't have time or they'll do it later. So do that. But LinkedIn is, is an amazing tool for networking. And some people use it very well and some people don't. And I've created a lot of really positive relationships. Look at you and I are on this podcast right now just by reaching out and connecting with people on LinkedIn. I think one of the powerful things is to talk about what you can do to help that person or what that person could do to help you and how you can make it a mutually beneficial relationship. Don't just go out there asking for people to do stuff for you. And maybe from time to time that might work, but try to help other people and then see if there's a way that you can help each other. I think that's great. One of the topics that I talk about pretty frequently is cybersecurity in the boardroom. And a lot of people ask me, hey, how do I get closer to the boardroom or how do I set myself up as a potential board member in the future? And one of the pieces of advice that I give as well as others is it's all about your network. So, you know, Steve, you and I are very well connected in the cybersecurity community, but Go, you know, if you're interested in board service, go connect with current board members, connect with CEOs, CFOs, people who are either in the boardroom now or are working with the boardroom or on their way to the boardroom and start to expand your network outside of kind of your comfort zone or your traditional group that you're you're with. Absolutely. But a follow on to that, or maybe if you could tell us, I have my own kind of perspective on this, but 
you're reaching out to those that are already in the room. That makes a lot of sense. You don't just go from there to sitting in the room. What are some of the steps or the elements? If the goal is to finally be in the room and the first step is to, well, maybe not just be in the room, but be contributing to those in the room and, and maybe either as your direct employer or uh, as an adjunct uh, outside of as a some sort of, you know, giving a security perspective, uh, either on a topic or otherwise, what are some of the steps in between that occur or that should occur? Well, so I think the important thing here is that people know who you are and what you do, what your expertise is. So I think there's a fair amount of luck to getting an opportunity to get into a board seat or, or as you were talking about, being kind of a board consultant. But you're never going to get that opportunity if people don't know who you are. So there was a great quote that I heard on, a, on another podcast that I listened to called Boardroom Bound by a guy named Alexander Lowry. And the quote was, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. So by expanding your network and letting people know what it is that you're an expert in, right? So I'm a cybersecurity expert, if you will. Then when they hear about an opportunity or they think about an opportunity, your name might pop up in their head and they might reach out to you and say, hey, Steve, I heard about this opportunity to consult a boardroom about cybersecurity. Is it something you'd be interested in? And one existing board member who I was talking about and saying, hey, this is some, this is a topic that interests me. She said, you know, what's really important that you have. And I said, what's that? And she said, you need to have a really good bench. I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, at some point you're going to get on two or three boards and you'll be full, right? And then you'll hear about another great opportunity and you won't be able to take that opportunity. But what you want to be able to do, and this goes back to the topic of LinkedIn networking and how you can help someone is if you find out somebody else is looking for a cybersecurity focused board member, you can say, hey, I know 10 other people that could potentially do this and you can refer people to them. So having that bench on your side is a great thing and a way that you can help other people. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing to be clear on, I think, is there's many different, well, there's several different ways to help when we say the board. It may mean actually a subcommittee. You may not, probably won't be a voting member, but you may be an observer or, or at least somebody that's brought in to help maybe even prep or maybe even help someone who is about to present that represents security to help them prep for their meeting. That's another sort of use case within this. And lastly, sometimes you're there to kind of act as a ringer to apply sort of indirect pressure back to whomever's presenting. So it could be a source of knowledge. You know, at the highest level, you're a voting member. That's And it depends on, is this publicly traded? Is it not? Is this a startup? Is There's lots of sort of flavors within that. But traditionally, there's a couple different sort of levels of involvement. But the, the statement about a bench is very accurate and a great idea. You don't want to overcommit unless maybe you're retired and that's all you do, right? And that you, you could do more than, than a handful, right? There is a phrase called overboarding, which, you know, some people are on like seven and that's too much, right? The, the, the schedules don't work. All that stuff doesn't work. So you got to be reasonable. Well, and I mean, I don't, I'd like to know your perspective on this. There's an element of, depending on your role, there is a potential fiduciary element and an element of risk involved. There are some cases I know of where people have turned down involvement because of the risk of involvement, sort of the gravity that they've applied to the position. 
or the benefit didn't align with the implied risk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You really got to, you know, if you get contacted about doing a, a board role, you really got to do the homework on your side. You got to, you shouldn't jump at the first opportunity you're given just because it's an opportunity. You really got to do the homework and say, is this an organization that I want to get involved with? What are the kind of risks that they have here? Look at, you know, uh, look at their onboarding program for board members, right? And look at the, the different documentation that they have. If they don't have any of that stuff, it's probably a red flag to say this might not be a good opportunity for you, especially if you're brand new. Exactly. And, and let's assume that it's a good opportunity. Let's say that that's all good. Here in a little bit, we're going to talk about interview questions uh, in general. We had a chance to chat about that before, but really related to this sort of board-ish or subcommittee type opportunity, what are the kinds of things that you would ask going in? So assuming they've got good onboarding, but before that, right, let's say it's even a friend that's sort of giving you the lead on this. So like, there's nothing tricky, but like, what are some of the things that you would recommend that a security person ask? What's the preparation that you go through? Not everything, but just a couple things. Yeah, just a couple things off the top of my head. So I want to know about the culture of the company and specifically the culture around cybersecurity. I want to know about the CEO and their history. I want to learn about the executive team and their history. Of course, if I'm going to be advising about cybersecurity, I want to know about the CISO. I want to know about their history. I'd like to meet the CISO and speak with them. I think those things would be good. And then also looking at any kind of audit reports, incident reports, any kind of historical stuff that you can see. A lot of times, companies are looking for this type of expertise in a situation where they've already had some kind of a breach or a negative situation, which is not bad. In fact, you come in with kind of a, a spirit of, you know, people are open to this and thinking of this is something we need to invest in. This is important. They're going to change their culture a little bit. But, you know, do your homework and be careful. Don't get into a, a bad situation because, as you said, there are responsibilities that you have to stakeholders and shareholders and want to make sure you, you fulfill them. If I may, I, I would add, I would like to see a schedule of meetings, maybe over the last couple of years, and then how many minutes if someone had it, or maybe if you don't have minutes to this detail, but the number of slides that were related to IT security or audit. So I want to get, I want to know duration of meeting, and then I want to know by percent. And that doesn't have to be a large percent, but I want to know the familiarity of and how much content has been covered in the past, because I don't, you know, is it a zero? Has it normally been zero? And then there was a, as you noted, a breach, and now they've been inundated with this. And then the other thing, sometimes it's helpful, is third-party information, such as who runs either external audit, what firm, and then who runs advisory services, so sort of from the inside. So if there's, for example, like a PwC, obviously if they're doing one, they're not doing the other typically, but a lot of times you can get access to like the partner over that. And that's a great other way to kind of get some additional, maybe inside baseball, kind of the temperature of what's going on. This is a little more hard, more difficult to do, but it's if you can do it, if you know that relationship, it's it's super valuable. You got to be careful, though, because they may have their favorites. You want to do that last after you're already locked in because they may have their favorites and they may want to slot one of their one of their folks in instead. So you don't want to do it too early because you can sort of signal that it's going on. So a point of caution there. No, absolutely. And I would say one of the other things that you could look at as you, you were talking, it kind of reminded me of this as well, is look at their committee structure. 
right? Do they have a technology and cyber risk committee, right? Have they given it enough importance that they have a committee that's dedicated to this? Or do they put it into the kind of governance junk drawer of the audit committee and it gets, as you were saying, you know, one minute or five minutes a year or something like that? So it's a good thing to look at. You will, whatever you do, you will have to do a lot of homework to make sure that it's the right fit for you as you go into this. So I want to transition a, a little bit. We had kind of a one of my favorite questions, I think, to ask in topics is just interviewing, uh, interview questions, and how does that sort of shape what you do, right? So specifically, you mentioned there's kind of three areas, and I want to kind of unpack each of those. But just for the listener, you had enterprise risk management, cyber culture, and then sort of being specific about things that you hate. Let's go to why did you list enterprise risk management as sort of one of the topics of questions? What is what's the thing there that a that a CISO or a security leader needs to focus in on from your perspective? Well, in fact, some of my peers are now responsible for enterprise risk management at their organizations at the executive level. Right? Now, if you know about the history of ERM, it really comes from Sarbanes-Oxley and a lot of companies that I've seen seem to be doing a kind of tick the box exercise for ERM. So what I would like to understand from an ERM perspective is, is it really being used to drive business decisions, to drive change in the organization, or are they just going through and saying, yep, we did the ERM, we sent a quarterly email, we had a meeting once a year and talked about the risks and showed it to the board, once you do that, that's great. You get all that input. What are you doing with the information? How are you making changes based on what happened? So I think that's indicative of whether or not the culture of a business is really taking this thing seriously or not. So can you give me an example? Oftentimes, I'm asked to go and do an organization and say, hey, do you see any red flags kind of as a free consultant, especially around security operations, the SOC in particular? Not operations is more general as we know, but I would be more specific. What's a red flag? So this is an, an issue you have. Are we taking enterprise risk management seriously enough? What's something that that maybe a, a CISO could spot or an applicant could spot or maybe even one of their lieutenants and say, you know what, they're doing it, but they're just they're not that serious about it. What's one thing? I've got one indicator I want to share, but I want to I want you to I have a favorite that I like to share, but is there anything that you have a favorite on in that topic that you're saying, hey, this is my red flag. This is sort of a BS symptom. Yeah, I would say to me, it's whether or not there is a change commensurate with the change that happens in the ERM process. So let's say we go to ERM, everybody votes on what the risks are, whatever we go through, we define our top five risks. Okay, everybody says cybersecurity is one of the top five risks. We can see that it's changed over the last year. We're implementing some controls, but certainly things from the outside are changing. We see it as a business risk to us that we're going to need to increase what we're doing in cybersecurity. And then it goes to the board, it goes to the executive committee. And then what happens to the cybersecurity team? Absolutely nothing. So that's a clear indicator to me is if you see it making some progress in ERM and then nothing happens after that, then it's really not being followed. The full ERM is taking place. You can go tell your auditor, yes, we did the exercise, but is it actually driving change within the organization? I would say that's my red flag. Yeah. Mine is if there's observable failures, like if if the examples given 
aren't supported by observable failures specific to major outages or incidents that have directly impacted the organization, if that's not sort of used as not listed and it still gets ignored, meaning there's sort of the after action, this is a little, a little lower level, but to me, it's if you have, um, I'm not even talking about a, you know, a breach or anything like that, but you know, your observations of your highly trained and expensive security team, if those aren't being used, providing it's, it needs to be on the ledger and it typically needs to be, and it may not be in the top five, but if it's six, seven, eight, nine, and, you know, we learn from that, we respond poorly to incidents organizationally, that we lack visibility, that we don't have asset lists or asset owners, that we have subsidiaries that are poorly managed, but are sort of separate for political reasons, but lack the similar resources, but pose equal or greater risk. If these kinds of things aren't getting sort of bubbled up and funded and tracked, I have a huge issue, especially as it relates to, which was our earlier point of interviewing well, right? What am I taking on? So it's seeing that traceability is super important. So I think that's a, an excellent point to dig into. I don't know how much they'd let you get into during the interview, right? They may not, they might be pretty tight lipped. That's a, that's a hard one to get into. And the next one is about culture too. And it's the same thing. I mean, you can talk to four or five or 10 people in an organization, they might all tell you the culture is great. And you get in there and you're in there one, two, three months and you realize, boy, this culture is not great. But it's, it's a hard thing to judge unless you're inside of the organization. Yeah, they tricked me. What is an example of, you, you know, the, the note I took when we met earlier is just cyber culture in general. You know, one of the ones that I would put on there is if you have a major incident and you are thinking about, by definition, you need to call a breach, you don't detect a breach, you call a breach, but you're trying to call a breach and nothing happens or it gets covered up, how open would they share their prior failures, I guess is what I'm trying to march toward. And then what were the actions after that? Was there a culture change? I would think that most organizations that are that have openings for a CISO, probably half of them have had a, a major incident or a breach. So like that should be part of the discussion. What would you add to that? Uh, or does something else jump to mind on the sort of the the culture? Or, or should there even be a good one if you're coming in? Could it be a is it do you expect should we expect there to be a bad one because they need a new person to run it? What's the expectation? Yeah, I mean, the average tenure for a CISO is somewhere around three years. So there is some kind of natural turnover that happens. And you're right, there's organizations that have never had a CISO before, and then they've had a breach, and then they say, oh, we need a CISO, and they get funding for it, and that happens. And then you come into kind of a negative environment. But And you can look at that one way or the other, right? There could be, you know, coming in post-breach, you might have everyone's attention. You might be able to really make some organizational change that you couldn't have made before. I think the worst cyber culture that you can get into is a business that believes that it's never had a breach and probably has, because as we say in the, in the industry, right, there's two types of companies, those who know they've been breached and those who don't know they have. And then where there's not really a, a top down following of cybersecurity best practices, right? Where the CEO or the board or the executive team say, well, but I, I don't have to do any of that stuff. You know, I don't have to do the training or, you know, submit phishing emails or whatever. Those people are really your most attacked people. And the other challenge that I've seen in organizations where there is a strong support of cybersecurity at the top level is a lot of times it's, there's a great quote that a guy who was the 
CEO of Nestle UK told us, he said, the sense of urgency is very hard to cascade. So, you know, he goes and tells his direct team, he'll say, look, cybersecurity is really important. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, it's really important. And they will go and meet with their team. And if they remember, they might say, oh, yeah. And by the way, the CEO said cybersecurity is really important. And then those people might go meet with their leaders and say, oh, and by the way, if they remember, cybersecurity is really important. So by the time that kind of telephone game is played, it's like, yeah, who really cares about it? So getting that message properly cascaded throughout the organization, even if it is strong at the top, is always a challenging thing. So let's move into the third piece. And I think this is, I don't know that I've heard this. I don't think it's been brought up before. We talk about this often on the show, but it's being specific about the things you hate. And you probably wouldn't phrase it that way. But again, we're interviewing. You are sharing the things that you either probably not going to outline your, your weaknesses, or maybe you do, but certainly dislike. I mean, the reason why this came up and the reason why I love this question, take a half step back, is a lot of times people go in, they get the job, and they, they realize, I've had 10 guests talk about, I didn't even know I was going to own this other thing. And like now it's on my, on my punch list, and I didn't even want this. And now I'm responsible for it. So it sounds like we have an issue of scoping the position during the interview process. So unpack this a little bit for us. Well, there, there is that side of it, the, you know, being assigned things that some people think, well, obviously that's cybersecurity when in some ways it isn't. And when you're in a very large organization, there's a lot of this kind of finger pointing that takes place and you have like ticket bouncing and, hey, this isn't our problem. It's so-and-so's problem. I think one of the areas of cybersecurity that is a, a redheaded stepchild, if you will, is business continuity planning and whether or not you consider that part of cybersecurity or not. If that's under your uh, responsibility, then my deepest condolences to you because BCP in itself is very much a business driven thing, right? It's all about business process. Now, there is a cybersecurity aspect to BCP, which is, hey, if we have a cyber attack, you might need to follow your BCP programs for a while. But cybersecurity, in my opinion, should not be the one inside of an organization that's driving business continuity planning. Now, if I can indulge you, there is another area that is a kind of a recent hot button, and I think it's quite important. It's the concept of cybersecurity owning patching or not. Oh, yep. I've got a big opinion on this. Let's hear it. So I know uh, one peer of mine, in fact, he went up to his leadership and said, the organization that does the patching, the, the server team, the desktop team, those organizations need to report into me. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to secure the organization. And by making that change, he was able to really drive and increase the, the patching numbers. Now, you may need to divide some of those teams because some of them are doing kind of architecture stuff and some are doing patching or whatever. But that's always kind of a, a hot button between IT infrastructure teams and cybersecurity teams where you're saying, here's the stuff that you need to go fix. And they're saying, yeah, I've got, you know, 10,000 other things to do. I'll do a couple of things or I'll patch some things or no, because things are going to break. That's, there's always a challenge there. So I think that's a, that's a good one to talk about if, uh, if you're talking about things that are giving you a hard time. I, well, I think to extend that, two thoughts. One, I know many organizations where the patching is owned by the CISO, but not the action of patching or config, right? So they have the policy 
they have the responsibility for the audit and all the rest, but they don't, they're not the one that's actioning. Now, it can still work. But the bigger complaint I have is many organizations can't even produce an asset list and an asset owner list. And yet somehow that then falls on the shoulders of the CISO. Whereas no one can give a list of assets and asset owners. How does IT get away with that? How does procurement get away with that? How do we not know what assets we have? It's an asset like anything else. If the CFO couldn't tell us how many dollars we had inbound or outbound, they'd be fired. So there's many other examples, but that one blows my mind. The other point that I have on this one is we're almost in that model you shared. And I don't know that I love it, but I I don't dislike it either. But it's almost like, and I've heard people argue this on LinkedIn and in other forums, where the CISO, rather than reporting to the CIO, it should be flipped. Now, I don't know that I love that. I, I, I see the CIO as a diminishing role. I see there's CTO and other and cloud. And it's like that position is sort of changing, just like the CISO. But you, you're inverting that responsibility, which I think you could make a strong argument for. Yeah, I don't know about the flip thing. I definitely agree that there's a conflict of interest if the CISO reports to the CIO, right? Because there's, you know, one wants to do something that the other doesn't want to do. But I, I really agree with you on the asset management side. The teams that are doing that should probably report up into the CISO because they're the ones who are being held accountable for those things. And, you know, I, you can argue it either way. And there's some organizations, like you said, where it does work. And that's great for them, but there's other organizations where it definitely does not. It's already been, by my clock here, over 40 minutes. There's one, actually, there's many things I want to talk to you about, but one I want to get to here. You also teach, and I think this is an important thing. And my question to you, it's a very simple one, maybe too simple, but why do you teach? Why do I teach? Well, I like to think it's to give back, but it's a two-way street. There's a thing for me that kind of keeps me on the cutting edge. One of the things that I really love to do is go do these outreach programs for high school kids to start inspiring them to get into cybersecurity as a career. That's that's really rewarding. And man, if you see some of those people who then go on to get careers in cybersecurity because you went one afternoon to their high school and inspired them or something, that's that's incredibly powerful. So, and we didn't even introduce, where do you teach and, and what classes do you teach? So I teach at Washington University, and I'm part of their executive cybersecurity learning program. So we teach deputy CISOs, vice presidents who are looking to get into that CISO role, uh, also includes CIOs who want to have a better understanding about cybersecurity, um, but teaching those executives through the program to give them the leadership skills and the technical skills to be able to get there when they're ready. How much of your time, and I I ask this just for those that are considering it, if you look back at our show, almost 100 shows now, I I bet there's been, you are probably number five or six uh, in terms of those that have at least an adjunct professor or some sort of lecturer or teacher at a collegiate level. How much of your time do you allocate to do a proper job outside of the classroom, meaning it's an executive program, so maybe a little bit different, but are you creating lessons, lesson plans and that kind of thing? Or is there pre-made material? Is it a little of both? Yeah. So, I mean, I've created my own lesson plans from scratch. There are courses or, or peers that I know that teach already crafted lesson plans, and then they kind of put their own spin on it. But, you know, I like to put enough time so that 
my students get value out of it. I don't know if I have a specific, you know, hour time or percentage or something like that, but during the time when we're preparing the lesson plans and the material, I would say probably about 10 hours or so that we'll spend dedicated to that. And then during the, when the course is in session, probably about another 10 or 15 hours of, you know, assigning things and following up on the assignments. And then of course, teaching the course itself. So, and usually what I do is based on the feedback from the course, I would go and make changes to the learning material to make things better or more interesting or something like that. And of course, cybersecurity is constantly changing. So you can always update your material. I mean, the statement you made earlier, and I think this is important, I probably need to do a better job at this, even though I spend a lot of time reading breach reports and on Intel lists and other types of enrichment, but I, I never feel like I've done enough. But you seem to have another maybe hidden motivation, but a good one, which is just being concerned about obsolescence. And I don't think that would be the case, but it's sounds like it's something that's sort of, you know, whispering in your ear. Is that the case? Well, I'm a strong believer that if we're not constantly learning and growing and progressing, that we will become obsolete. You know, the skills you were using five years ago are not the ones you're using today. And the same thing goes for five years from now. They also talk about, you know, the jobs that our kids are going to have don't exist today, that kind of thing. So whenever I have people reporting to me, I dedicate 10% of their time to learning and training and, you know, growing so that they will develop the new skills and be able to take on those new things as they come. I think it's a really good thing. It's sort of the, I would tell staff that rather than go to a bad meeting, just leave the meeting and do something more valuable. Even, even if you're reading Slashdot or, or reading a, reading something, have things ready that you want to research. And maybe you, even if you don't have dedicated time, half days on Friday or whatever, uh, have that ready. And I said, please, if it's a bad meeting, don't go to bad meetings, leave bad meetings, and then recoup that time to, you know, if you want to spend it on enrichment. Uh, if you need help with that, I'll, I always, you know, made time to do so. But, um, you know, reclaim that and spend it on something that's going to make you more valuable rather than sort of letting your time get sort of hoovered up. That's great advice, Steve. And, you know, we talked earlier about LinkedIn, the great networking tool and learning back and forth from each other. I think hashtag leave bad meetings is trending on uh, Twitter right now. So I want to go check that out. Yeah, I, man, don't go to just leave. And stupid tasks, too. I, I could tell a lot of stories about this. Just don't do it. Like, we're not doing that. We're, we're, you know, I'll tell a real quick story. When I took over as director a long time ago at a prior life, there was this deck that was like, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 pages long that was made every month. And people spent all this time creating it. And, and it became a staple. And it was all these statistics and slides and numbers. And, and it wasn't good. I remember flipping through. I was like, this is good for nothing. I, I, I can't identify a problem. Uh, I can't use it to make a decision. It does. It's not even good to create a controversy or anything like that. People who've listened to the show know this from me. I was like, just stop doing it. People lost their mind. We can't stop doing this. I was like, yeah, I'm to gloat. I'm I'm in charge. Like this is my deck, and I say we're not doing any of it anymore, and we're going to do a different one. And it turns out it didn't matter. So we saved I don't know how many hours from ten, twelve different people. So just if something's dumb, like work for people and work in teams to to call that out. It's it's amazing how what the traps that we put ourselves in. Yeah, I like I always like to challenge people to say, do you think if the executive team or the board of directors knew how much time we were spending working on this deck to present to them, that they would think that that was valuable, that they'd not rather us go and be doing something else that's more related to our actual job? Well, 
And especially in some organizations, it just ends up in the appendix and no one looks at it anyway. So yeah, which is pursuant to your statement. Well, speaking of, we're at time, but I've got one more question. We end every show on the same one. Pursuant to the name of this show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you, Andrew? So I've thought about this as we talked about it before, and uh, I'll I'll tell you how I'm going to answer it. I think being a new CISO is seeing cybersecurity as a business enabler. You know, when I grew up in cybersecurity, we were seen as the the people who said no, the cosmic killjoy. What I want to see as a new CISO is ways that we can enable business to happen, enable data to flow, but do it in a secure way. Uh, I think that's extremely true. And even if that means some of the advice you mentioned earlier, just reaching out and meeting the people that actually run the business and understanding what they do and, and what's their currency and dialogue and level of understanding and knowledge. Great first step. Andrew, thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.